Forgotten History is presented by State Farm. Getting great car or home insurance from State Farm at a surprisingly great rate? Well, that's just like talking the biggest names in NFL history and hearing their untold stories. It's the real deal. So choose insurance that always brings its A-game. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know, here on the East Coast and really across the country, McDonald's isn't just a global restaurant, it's a local one as well. Just like how the guests on this show aren't just major Hall of Fame athletes, they're stars and celebrities, but people that work inside each of their communities. McDonald's are owned and operated by people who live in those communities. And when you eat at McDonald's, you're actually supporting American businesses, maybe even your neighbor's business. The McDonald's franchises also care about the communities that they live and work in. They give back by helping first responders and, of course, supporting local Ronald McDonald charity chapters. When you own a McDonald's, you are committed to serving the community where you do business. McDonald's, serving here. He said, no, how many carries can I give him? And no turned to him and said, he'll let you know when he's tired. <laughs> I don't think I ever remember you saying, yeah, I'm tired. I don't think that ever happened. <laughs> Hey everybody, Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another edition of Half Forgotten History. You know the drill. We sit down with some of the greatest names in sports, chop it up, some of the great stories you've never heard before, all while enjoying a very, very soothing beverage. Today's guest is pretty special to me. I grew up a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, and they went through a terrible time for a few years. I know that sounds pretentious, a few years. But then they got to the Super Bowl three out of four years. I took my dad to all three Super Bowls. So that was fun. And a big reason why was our guest today. He was the number one pick for the Cowboys, 17th overall in 1990, the third of three straight Hall of Fame first-round picks for them. All he did was become an MVP, Super Bowl MVP, and lead the game as the leading rusher in the history of the NFL. Of course, I'm talking about number 22, Emmett Smith. Man, it is always good to see you, Emmett. How are we living, my friend? Hey, I'm living, brother. I'm making it day by day like everyone else is right now, dealing with this quarantine and uh, many other things, but... Uh... I can't complain. One thing I've learned, Trey, uh, about life and about and through sport, that uh, you're going to have some good days, you're going to have some bad days, just try to persevere through all days. Well, you had many more good days than bad days, so let's make this a good day with a little of that uh, little bottle you got there, a little well, of tequila. Yes, sir. I'm going to pour me a little bit of Hedadora tequila right here. This is Ultra, by the way, which is uh, one of the Ultra, one of the premium uh, tequilas that Hedadora offers. Um, it's one of my favorites, along with my uh, ES-22 one. I got an ES-22 that's a, a reposado that's pretty good. But uh, cheers to you, my friend, and cheers to your podcast and to all the listeners and followers out there. This is uh, one of those things where you drink slowly, neatly, but responsibly. Absolutely. Wow. That is good. Um, see, I always like coming on with you because you, you, you give me the good stuff. Now, now I feel like I'm ready to roll. Okay. So, I've been to do it for about 10 years now. Wow. And, uh, we celebrated our 10th anniversary this year. Matter of fact, I want to say sometime in January, because uh, we launched it at the uh, Super Bowl 45 right here in Dallas. Yeah. It's been, I launched a relationship with Hedadura and been with them for 10 years. But this right here is some other things that they have. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm looking forward to, to sampling all of that. But let's, uh, let's start at the beginning with you because I don't know if anybody made a better entrance into the Dallas Cowboys than you did. And of course, I'm talking about that outfit that you wore when you came to Dallas after you were drafted. If, if people haven't seen this thing, I can only describe it as a 
brown polka dotted jumper over a mustard yellow shirt. Yeah. Uh, that thing will stick with me as long as I live. <laughs> you know, it, it was uh, back in the day. There was a, there was a polka dotted uh, outfit. There was a guy named Kwame and uh, and MC Hammer. They all wore these real loose pants and so forth. Oh, yeah. And but uh, when Kwame had this like little polka dotted outfit and so forth. So. Uh, polka dots was actually in at the time. So I wore this polka dotted jumper and I didn't have a chance, a chance to change clothes because I didn't know where I would be drafted at. So I was at home relaxing, chilling with my family. This is before you had the internet and what we, the way we know it today. Right. So not knowing where you get drafted at, you just chilling around your family, not knowing if you're going to go to the first round, second round, or third round. So when I fell out of the top 10, didn't know if I would even be a first round draft pick. So when I got packed, selected by the Cowboys at the 17th pit, um, I went on this quick radio tour of talking with people and never had a chance to change clothes. And so where we were at at the time, which is off Perdido Key, we had to drive all the way back into Pensacola, which is about a 45 minute drive. And it was raining just for me to catch a 310 flight. I got dressed <laughs> around, around 1, 130 or 2 o'clock and I had to drive 45 miles miles into town and all that, just to get on the flight to fly to Dallas. And so I never had a chance to change clothes. And I, and I was prepared to wear something a little bit more appropriate. <laughs> I don't know, man. It seems pretty appropriate because everybody took notice right away. And when you got on the field, everyone took notice right away. So well, you were the third of three straight Hall of Fame first-round picks for the Cowboys. 88, it was Michael Irvin. 89, it was Aikman. You were in 1990. When you got there and got around these guys – how soon did you realize, holy crap, we're going to be a really good football team? You know, I, Trey, I, I had a feeling before I got there. Uh, and here's why. One, Jimmy Johnson. Yep. He was a winner in college, and he built a great Miami football team. And he built that team from people that were not, um, let's just call it, highly recruited players, well-known players. <clears throat> five top 50 players and so forth. He had guys that were football players and he knew how to find talent. And so that was my number one thing in my mind that we were going to become a good team. Number two, I had played against Troy Aikman as a freshman and also played against Michael Irvin when he was at Miami and Jimmy when it was my freshman year down at, at Florida. So we played against Aikman and UCLA and those guys out there in, in uh, Hawaii in the Aloha Bowl. And there was Ken Norton on the football field. There was James Washington on the football field. Gaston Green on the football field. Trey Aikman on the football field. And some other UCLA players. So I played against them, and I knew what Troy had the capabilities of doing. So when I got drafted by the Cowboys, I was so excited. I didn't even care about the 1-15. I just knew we were going to be better. And I knew Jimmy was going to build something that would be – pristine and that everyone can be proud of. Now, how that came together and how quickly it came together, that part I did not know. But I knew he was going to demand excellence. Yeah, you just missed the playoffs your rookie year. Then 91 comes, and that's the year when I think the Cowboys, that we know of the Cowboys of the 90s, really started to form. But Aikman wasn't around for a lot of that season. He got banged up a little bit, and Steve Berline came in there. And there was a time when people were wondering, okay, is it going to be Steve Berline or is it going to be Troy Aikman? I mean, that, there was some thought about that. Well, well, put it this way. Aikman, I think you think about 92. Yeah. 
92, but 91, Aikman was there. But here's the big thing that changed the, the, the trajectory of the Cowboys offense. North Turner came in in 91. That set everything else in motion. And Berline did come in, and I believe he did help that year. But Aikman was the guy. There was no doubt. Because Aikman and Irvin and then Harper came around and Jay Novacek was already there. And, and that ball was going everywhere. And I got my touches. Yeah. They made sure I got my touches. And, and I think that in itself tra- trans it transferred into a winning season and a successful season because we went into the playoff for the first time and we went there fairly quickly. Right. than everyone else would anticipate. Well, listen, one of my great North Turner lines of all time, I, I think he was talking about you before the rain game in Philadelphia in 93, right around Halloween, where it, was, it must have been a pre-production meeting with whoever's doing the broadcast. And he said, well, you know what? They're going to get a heavy dose of 22 today. And, and that was the philosophy, which is so weird now with the way football is played. The philosophy for the Cowboys was, until you stop this dude with our offensive line, we're just going to keep doing it. And my, my philosophy is... If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> and if they can't stop it, keep running it. Run it down and throw it until they stop it. Their job is to stop it. And if they can't stop it, just keep running it. One of my favorite things was when Norv left, Ernie Zampezi came in. And Zampezi asked Norv, he said, Norv, how many carries can I give him? And Norv turned to him and said, he'll let you know when he's tired. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't happen very often. I loved it. Uh, I was about to say, I don't think I ever remember you saying, yeah, I'm tired. I don't think that ever happened. Um, we, we do need to talk about that offensive line for a second, yes, right? I mean, yes. my God, the, you know, cause it, the Cowboys line, I, I think takes on mythical qualities now and people forget and Aikman will attest to this. Like before they all got there, it was the same guys. They just hadn't played together and they weren't great. And then they got some time together with Tui and Newt and Step and all those guys. And all of a sudden, the guys that were just sort of okay found a way to work together, and it was magic. Right. It was it was definitely magic. I think the transition from uh, David Shula to North Turner helped solidify what the office line was going to do. <clears throat> and then we went from Tony Wise into Hudson Hawk. Yep. Hudson Hawk was a great office line coach for the Rams and so forth back in the day. Uh, when Dickerson rushed for 2,000 yards and they had that great Ram team. And so we had the same offense. And, and our, what's so, what was so ironic about that offense is, Trey, it was the same offense I had in high school. Wow. The exact same offense, the exact same numbering system, the exact same pass tree that I had in high school. And so I was at home. Well, so now here's the question. How good was your high school coaching staff? <laughs> they're running the same thing the NFL. My high school coaching staff was pretty good. Jimmy Nichols and, and, uh, and Jimmy Nichols was our North Turner. Yeah. And Dwight Thomas was my Jimmy Johnson. Because he they demanded the same thing that Jimmy Johnson demanded. And, 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 and Jimmy would run that rock as much. And we'd throw the hitches. We'd throw the eight routes. We'd throw the sevens. We throw the fives and six, and we throw the four routes as well. We threw all the route tricks, and and so our offense was just we were good. We won two state championships, yeah, back to back. Well, speaking of back to back, that's that's something we should probably talk about. So let's take a quick break, uh, have a little sip, and when we come back with Emmett, 
We'll I talk got- about what it was like to be a member of the Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl winning teams of the 90s. Stay with us. I got eyes in mind. Now it's time for the surprisingly great story sponsored by State Farm. State Farm gets you surprisingly great rates. So when you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, now it's time for some surprisingly great stories about what I believe is arguably the deepest team the NFL has ever fielded. And that would be the Cowboys of the 90s because people forget it was after your first Super Bowl win uh, over the Bills in Super Bowl 27. That's when free agency hit. Yes. And, and you guys obviously got picked apart. But I, I think people don't know what it was to be a member of the Cowboys of the 90s at that time. You guys were superstars. You guys were rock stars. You, you guys were like a band that toured. It took on like this, a life of its own almost. It really did. It really did. And, and here's, here's how, how I would say you're absolutely correct. It took on a life of its own because when you think about marketing and promotions and everything else, you think about those marketing dollars and everything else going to your tier one, tier two athletes, your trademans, your Mike Irvins, or Emma Smith. And then you may go to uh, Alan Harper or, or Ken Norton or someone like that. Our team was such rock stars. We had special team guys that had that had apparel. We had special yeah. team guys that were selling licensed products. <laughs> so, so the long time. snapper, Dale Hellestray, had his own radio show. I have never show. seen a long snapper anywhere else have their own damn radio show. Jimmy Gant, the shark, had his own shark in hats. <laughs> and everything, he's doing dance on the football field. And every, I mean, everybody had a piece of the success that we were all were able to enjoy. And, and that's when you know that, hey, there's something special here. Yeah. There's a lot, we had a lot of personalities, no doubt. Oh. Well, I, I used to kid with Darren Woodson all the time. Thank God the Twitter wasn't around for the Cowboys in the 90s because things, things might have gone south in a hurry. Uh, but but you know, I think every athlete, Emmett, wants to be the baddest guy on the block. And for about a three-year, four-year period, you guys were. I mean, the swag you guys had was unmistakable. When did you guys, I mean, obviously the first Super Bowl probably solidified that. Uh, by the way, one of my favorite lines of all time, Jay Leno, after that Super Bowl of the Tonight Show, he said, 52 to 17, is that a score? Is Woody Allen dating again? Still one of the greatest <laughs> lines I've ever heard in my life. In my life. But that sort of launched you guys into the stratosphere. How much fun was it to walk around knowing, A, you were the baddest guys on the block, and B, Everyone wanted to take you down and they couldn't do it. You know, it felt good. It really did. It felt like it was unstoppable and we were unstoppable. But like you said earlier, when free agency hit and you start taking away our depth, Jimmy Jones ended up leaving and other players ended up leaving. And so our depth started to dwindle down. But we were so solid. I mean, so, so good. In 92, which was probably 92, 93 may have been our best two years, period. Yep. No doubt. And and it felt great because when we went to the second Super Bowl down in, in uh, Atlanta, here's one of my favorite stories. I'm walking in um, to a hard rock party, and this is like on a Wednesday night, and I'm standing on the red carpet, and I'm talking to the press. Then all of a sudden, I hear a commotion goes on behind me, and I turn around, and Lord, look who I see. I see Magic Johnson and I see Michael Jordan. 
Two of the greatest ever <laughs> on, the, on the red carpet. And they come up to me and say, man, congratulations, blase, blase, we're rooting for you. And they pat me on the back and they say, let's go in the club together. So we go in the club <laughs> together. <I'm> like, <laughs> That's when you realize I have arrived. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like the other thing, the only team I can think of would be the Bulls of the 90s and the Cowboys of the 90s in that similar vein of, of where everything went. You mentioned the second straight Super Bowl, and that was a that was a tough year. Again, Aikman got hurt that year. Bernie Kozar came in and helped you guys win the NFC Championship game that yeah. year. Yeah. Um, but you guys were down 13 to 6 half. Yeah. What happened at halftime? What was this? What was the halftime speech like? Because this is the same team that you'd beaten previous year, 52 to 17. It was their fourth straight year trying to win a damn Super Bowl in Buffalo. Yeah. What was going? What take me in? Take me in the locker room at halftime. What was going on, Dre? It was it was calmness, um, and it went pretty simple. I come in the locker room. North Turner comes up to me, say, "We're gonna get you the football." Jimmy Johnson come up to me, say, "We're gonna get you the football." And then, and all of a sudden, I hear commotion going on in my offensive line. The Eric Williams, Larry Allen, and everybody else. They just Nate New jump up and down. They all get hyped up, get ready. I'm like, yeah, it's my time. It's about, it's about to be on now. And, and you know, like Buffalo did in the previous Super Bowls, they made the fatal mistake. Yep. They turned the ball over. James Washington picks it up, it up, runs it back for a touchdown. We tie this game back up. And then all of a sudden, they go one, two, three, and out of punt. And that drive that we had, that eight play, eight play drive. Power on every play, right? Seven run plays. Seven run plays straight. I mean, except for the seventh play was a pass play, but the eighth play was a run play, and it was for a 20-some-yard touchdown. We ran power right, slant left, power right, slant left. We just ran that thing straight down the field for 60 or 70-some yards, and it was, and the game was over because what Jimmy and Norv realized, and, and you're right, Troy was banged up. Yeah. People forget we didn't have a bye week. Right. And he had got a concussion the week before against San Francisco. Ted so Washington. He had never played in that Super Bowl. Because yeah. he wasn't quite all the way there. <laughs> no, he was not. He was not. And, and we struggled in the first half. So they shifted gears fairly quickly. And they leaned on the thing that got us in the, in, into the playoff in the first place was that running game the whole entire season. And I remember you guys had taken the lead and it was in the fourth quarter and you were driving down again and it was a fourth and one or fourth and two, whatever, or from the goal line, fourth and goal. And, you know, a kick puts you up in a comfortable margin that you're probably going to win the game. And Jimmy was like, no, nah, we ain't kicking it. We, they, they ran it to you on the left side. When he does that, because he did that a bunch, you know, before that game, we'll find out their brass or paper mache. We, we, we know the whole story there. But when in that situation where a field goal probably wins you the game, and Jimmy Johnson said, screw it, we're going to ram it down their throats one more time. What did that give that team? What, what kind of energy did it give you knowing, hey, man, he knows I'm going to get it? Hey, <clears throat> Jimmy, one thing about Jimmy, Jimmy knew his players left and right. He knew the energy of the players. He knew the swag of the players. He knew how we practiced, whether or not we were going to have a close game or a game that no one could even touch us. He knew his team. He knew his players inside out. He knew how to push the right buttons. And at the end of the day, when it came down to that fourth and one at the goal line, and what we had did early on in the third quarter, and, and now we're down there, Jimmy's like, shoot, I got one of the best runners in the game. 
When it comes down to getting a touchdown, I know my guy going to get me a touchdown because <laughs> I was a touchdown hunting machine. I, that, that was the mission. You get me down there, I'm going to find a way to get in that end zone. One way or the other. Like I tell my son, EJ, when you get that close, it ain't no dancing. It's one cut and go, baby, and get behind your pass. It's mono, mono. It's, you have to rise up and become bigger than you really are and get into the end zone. Find that goal line and you penetrate that doggone white line and it's over. Period. And so... Emmett, Emmett, now I want to play. <laughs> you got me fired up, man. That's just the way it is, man. I mean, when the man turn to you and they call your number and everybody knows it's going to happen, shoot. You better, you better swell up. <laughs> well, and, and the, the Dallas Cowboys... Yeah. I told you, ego, you better swell no. up and man up. Let put, on your, <laughs> put on your big boy pants and get in there. And um, get in there. Yeah. Brother, it is always good to spend time with you. Cheers to you, my friend, and cheers to those Cowboys teams in the 90s. Thank you. Most definitely. So that'll do it for this episode of Half Forgotten History. Our thanks to Emmett Smith uh, for joining us. And because of that, we're sending a check to Ronald McDonald House in his name for giving us his time. But you know what? There was so much good stuff we didn't get to. We're going to run it back. We're going to do it again. We've got another episode with more information from Emmett Smith, including how he thought his marketing team lost him the Super Bowl 28 against the Bills. Stick around for that one next time.